Well, good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. Good. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, would you join me in praying? Father, truth is is wonderful. And yet at the same time, we also know that that knowledge puffs up, can make us proud. And so, God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that by your spirit, that the truth would be a measuring rod once again, to show us our deep need for more of you. That it would also be something that was worked into the fabric of our lives, not merely as theological fact, but as lived out experience and reality. We know your agenda for us. We know what your word tells us, that you have predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And whatever that gap is before, between where we now sit and, and what Christ's likeness is, I'm sure, Lord, that there is much to change and grow in us. So, Father, meet us again. Shape us by your truth. Guard us against pride and help us to grow in the likeness of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are very few people in my life that have demonstrated the consistent compassion that my wife has provided for me over the years. Now, this is something, I grew up in an all-boy family, you know. Uh, compassion was not one of our spiritual gifts. Uh, matter of fact, it was, you know, it was just sort of an ethic of, like, rub some dirt in it, don't cry, don't show a whole lot of emotions, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, my dad was a butcher and an outdoorsman. And, and so, you know, these things were, you know, being super feely wasn't something that I was uh, very accustomed to. And quite honestly, I didn't realize how, some, how much I was starved for that until I, until I got married. I can remember the first major hurdle that we encountered was, was in 2000, when shortly after marriage, we got a phone call that my little brother had passed away from leukemia. And, and my wife, who was only 21 at the time, um, she didn't have answers. There wasn't anything that she could say, really. But she, she just held me and, and comforted me as I, as I processed and as I wept. She didn't have the experience that was needed to help me process my emotions. But she was a presence that was there that because I was hurting, she was hurting with me. Right? I think of 2007 when the structure of my faith began to kind of crumble underneath me. I I had a framework for believing in God that had really uh, unsure foundations. And at this time, I was already pastoring. And while I was pastoring, I I woke up one morning um, and and just was like, I I don't know if any of this is true. I, I, I don't know. Like... Am I, am I caught up in some sort of weird mental trip? Where, where like, you know, just like people in other religious faiths are, are, are reading into the information of life and ascribing meaning where there isn't meaning, it's all happening up here in my head. Like, that, do you remember that movie, A Beautiful Mind? Where, where Russell Crowe is a mathematician, but he also has gone schizophrenic, is not aware of that, and so he's reading in to all the details of these problems that he's solving. Is, is, is that what's happening? I, I, I was next to my wife in bed weeping because my entire structure for believing in God was crumbling underneath of me. 
And, and my wife had no words <laughs> to be able to help me in that moment. There wasn't like some theological truth she was going to drop in the moment. I was having a crisis of faith. And she said, I, I'm so sorry, honey. She shed a few tears. And she said, let me pray for you. She leaned over and put her hands on me and, and, and began to pray for me and lift me up. She didn't know what to say. There was no counsel to give. Instead, she grabbed my face. She held it close. And she brought me to Jesus. The same thing happened in 2010 when our finances fell apart. And, and we ended up having to go through bankruptcy. And we lost our house. We lost everything and, and had to make a big move. And again, my wife demonstrated compassion I felt like I was failing as a husband. I felt like I, you know, like somehow all of this was my fault, my responsibility, and she, she bore that with me and continued to bring me to Jesus. And in 2016, 2016 when my father passed away, she was the one who, who called me and had to deliver that news in brokenness. In life... Probably no one has shared my pain more than my wife. From tragedies to finances to child-rearing pains to moments when my back went out and I had to crawl around the house like some sort of an animal. My wife was the one who was there calling the chiropractor and getting me an ice pack and loving me through my weakness. Crystal has again and again stepped into the pain, not with solutions, but with empathy and with compassion. You know, I heard this good definition for compassion. It's something that I heard a long time ago, but it has stuck with me. I don't even remember where I heard it from. But it kind of gets to the core of what compassion is. Compassion is someone else's pain in your heart. Compassion is someone else's pain in your heart. You know, the word compassion in itself is a compound word. Passion, the, the, the suffix on that word, means to suffer, like, like the passion of the Christ. And then the prefix, calm, means with. So the word compassion, this compound word, means with suffering or suffering with others. Today, in our passage here in, in Mark chapter 5, we are going to see how the pains of others are born in the heart of Jesus. We're going to witness, if you will, an up-close look at, at how sensitive Jesus is to the hurts of others, what, what, what's happening in their lives, how that matters to him, and the degree to which he exhibits this incredible emotional intelligence. So we'll, we'll start to dive in here. Now keep in mind that even though Jesus knows how each of these pains is going to be resolved, he is with the people in the suffering. It would be very easy to look at the story of Jesus and go, well, yeah, of course, you know, he's going to heal here. He's going to do this miracle here. And so he knows it's all going to be good. So it's easy for him to just sort of be like, hey, well, just come with me. Everything's going to be fine, right? But that's not what he does. He enters into the suffering of others. So our outline for today uh, follows the flow of the text from Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verses 21 through 43. For those of you who are note takers, uh, our outline goes like this. The compassion of Jesus, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> verses 21 to 29, in calamity. Verses 21 to 29, the compassion of Jesus in calamity. Verses 30 through 34, in confession the compassion of Jesus in confession. And verses 35 to 36, in confusion, the compassion of Jesus in confusion. And lastly, verses 37 to 43, in care, the compassion of Jesus 
in care. So that's going to be our sort of thought folders as we kind of work our way through the text. Let's go ahead and take a look at what the scripture says, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now she had heard the reports about Jesus and, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12, year, 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus here has left the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps you'll remember from a previous study how Jesus had delivered this man who was possessed with a whole horde of demons. In a clear example of his power over demonic forces, Jesus casts the demons into a herd of pigs that immediately run down the banks and they fall into the sea and they are drowned. Now, this didn't set well with the people who lived in that area because you know, they had made their living off of the pigs, right? So they asked Jesus, hey, would you please leave our area? Please leave this coastline. But before Jesus leaves, before his departure, Jesus left a man that had been freed from the demons, and he left him there as a missionary to that area. Now, this becomes really important because in chapter 6, we learn that when Jesus revisits this area, he comes back to this area that people gathered from all around and came to, to see Jesus because they had heard the testimony of what had happened. 
Then Jesus gets back in his boat. He crosses back over to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum, which was kind of his home base of operations. And verse 21 tells us that Jesus is greeted by a great crowd that gathers once again. And he's teaching them once again by the sea. Now, this crowd that is present is likely the same crowd that caused him to get into the boat in the first place. Perhaps you'll remember from chapter 3, verse 8, how the crowd was pressing against Jesus so much so that they thought he was going to get crushed. Perhaps you saw the news recently of how that can happen. It happened at a large concert recently where people literally were crushed to death because of the frenzied crowd of people. And so Jesus retreated to a boat to create this sort of barrier between him and the crowd, but but it also enabled him to preach from that place. So this crowd that is there is large, and they're, they're, they're in it for their own motivations. They're pressing against them. They're not being considerate of one another. This is actually something that's really common in Middle Eastern countries. It's kind of a, a, a pushiness, a, not really an honoring of personal space, <laughs> right? And if you've traveled much, you know what I'm talking about. Then verse 22 introduces us to this new person. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell down at his feet. Now, 22 introduces us to Jairus, and we're given a few details that I think are meant to to orient us as to why it might be a big deal that this man is coming to Jesus, that he's among the crowd. We're told that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue rulers weren't like priests or anything. They were actually... Uh, people who were in charge of the care of the facility, and um, and they also, you know, set up times of worship and that kind of a thing. And and synagogues in in Jesus's day were multi-use uh, or multi-purpose buildings for use. Uh, a lot of community events happened there, and teaching school would happen there, and worship services would happen there. And so it was a a common gathering place. And Capernaum to this day actually has a, a, a beautiful. A remnant of a synagogue that, that was there that was likely the synagogue that Jesus stood in. Now, it was rebuilt again in the third century or something like that, uh, but it's in the exact same location where Jesus, where Jesus taught. So this guy, Jairus, was in, was in this position of facilitating them. Now, a ruler of the synagogue was also a person who sometimes acted as a judge. He mediated like local conflict, pronounced judgment on Criminals. I mean, he was a, a very well-known public figure in that time. And perhaps you will remember from chapter 3 how there, there was an incident that took place in the synagogue in Capernaum. How when Jesus went in on the Sabbath day, there was a man with a withered hand. You guys remember that story? And this man with a withered hand was present, and, and there was sort of a trap that was laid for Jesus. Like, is he going to heal him? If he does, it's the Sabbath day, and he shouldn't be doing work on the Sabbath. And, you know, there was like this controversy, but Jesus does it anyway. He charges in. He makes, he irritates these, the religious leaders of the day. Well, J. Iris is, is likely very aware of that situation because he would have been at the heart of that controversy that was taking place. So he is aware of the political cost, if you will, of coming to Jesus because it's going to make him unpopular with the people who don't like Jesus. And yet he is also driven to come to Jesus despite what it might cost him. Despite the fact that Jairus was a man of influence and a man of means, he is driven to risk public opinion to approach Jesus in a moment of calamity. What was that moment? It was his daughter. Now Luke chapter 8 verse 42 tells us that this was his only daughter. It emphasizes that. It lets us know that she was extremely valuable. His only daughter. And so this father 
who sees his only daughter sick and at the point of death, he's driven, he's compelled by his father's heart to come and approach Jesus, no matter what it looks like to the public, no matter matter what kind of compromising position that puts him in politically in his own community, it doesn't matter. He loves his daughter too, too much to do nothing. He's desperate. Sudden calamity has come upon his house. We, we find later on from verse two, uh, 42 that she's 12 years old. She's just barely at the point of her bat mitzvah, that, that time, that coming of age time in the Jewish community. Can you hear the tenderness in his, in his plea to Jesus? He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Can you, can you feel the ache in his heart? My baby girl, please, Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what this costs. I, I, I don't care what this looks like to anybody else, but my, my little daughter, Jesus, she's at the point of death. If you come, if you, just, if you just lay your hands on her, just do what you did with the man with the withered hand. If you just... Do that. I, I know that she'll be made well. I know that she'll live. Can you hear the cry of this father's heart? You know, nothing has the potential to drive a person to Jesus like sudden calamity. Especially calamity that involves your kids. And those of you who have children, uh, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you love your kids more than you love your own life. Now, though Jesus did not necessarily have a great relationship with the controlling religious parties that had established the synagogue that were in charge in that day, Jesus looks beyond whatever history is there. He sees the heart of this man and he responds to his desperation. He just simply says, let's go, let's let's do it. And he follows him. He goes with him. Verse 24, he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, verse 24 tells us that Jesus went with him. There's no argument. There's no pulling up history of how things could have been handled at the synagogue differently. Just a compassionate Savior feeling the anguish of a desperate father's heart and responding in compassion. Now, at this point, this, this great crowd is in tow as well. And, and, and they're thronging about him. The description Mark gives us of how the crowd thronged about him tells us that making their way to Jairus' house was likely not easy. People are pressing on every side. And so they're, they're having to move through the people. And you can, you, you can feel the anxiety of Jairus as they're trying to make their way through this crowd of people. And everybody has their own needs, and they all want something from Jesus, and they're all pressing up against him. Jesus and Jairus are trying to make their way, and and the disciples are sort of acting, I'm sure, like, like security guards, like trying to part the sea of people to get them through. You can tell by the closeness of the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples that they were close at hand following along with them in the crowd, probably facilitating their travel. In verses 25 to 26, it says, and while all the people are crowding around, there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, based on the laws contained in Leviticus chapter 15, the last part of the chapter, verses 25 to 33, this discharge of blood made her ritually or ceremonially unclean perpetually because it was something that never went away. And not only that, but anything that she touched was made ceremonially unclean as well. So it was a very isolating predicament to have culturally. It was something that that caused people to not want to 
touch her or be around her or touch something that she had accidentally touched because there was this whole washing ceremony that you would have to go through if you had accidentally touched something that she had touched. It was a very isolating experience. And she had had this for 12 years. Unlike J. Iris, this woman's calamity was not sudden and short. It was something that extended for a long period of time. And it isn't as though she had not pursued getting help. I mean, we're given details. It's likely something that she confesses later on when Jesus calls her out of the crowd. But we're told three things. We're told, first of all, she had suffered much under many physicians. Second of all, she had spent all that she had. And then thirdly, Not only has she not gotten better, but she only grew worse. I read this last week, some of the recommendations for this particular affliction by rabbis and physicians of the time that all sounded like hocus pocus. It was like, take this herb and and mix it with water and then pour it over her head and make her stand in the sun facing east. And, you know, it's like just weird, wacko stuff, right? Not anything that's going to help her. And she had spent all of her material wealth pursuing some sort of escape from this affliction. But, but, but there was no relief. In verse 27, it says, But she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So she'd heard these stories about Jesus and the miracles that he had done. The miracles that were happening around him. And and in an act of desperation, she breaks all the customary laws. In my mind, as I'm sort of picturing this play out, I think of this woman as she's, you know, like trailing behind Jesus in the crowd. She's like, okay, if if I can just get up there. Right? Maybe she's got something kind of covering her, her face or masking her identity as she, she travels through the crowd and she just thinks, oh man, if I can just touch. Look at what verse 20, 28 says. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. She had this thought in her mind. She, she took this risk, right? Like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not important enough for him to speak to me. Maybe I'm not important enough for him to, 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 to reach out and touch me or lay his hands on me, but, but if I could just touch him, if I could just like, reach through and I could just even catch the border of his garment, maybe then, maybe then I can be made whole. So she has this thought. She hatches this plan. She stalks him through the crowd. She's trying to hide herself. She reaches out. She touches the hem of his garment. Now, I think it's important to to note something here. In in Luke chapter 8, verse 44, it tells us that she touched the fringe of his garment. Now, this is significant in a couple of ways. One, sort of simply and and more straightforward, it means that she didn't grab a hold of his robe and try and, like, suck power out of Jesus, (laughs) right? She wasn't like a a, a hoover, just like, please, I need you, right? (laughs) She just comes through and she, just, she touches the border, the fringe of his robe. But it, it also secondarily may signal what the woman had faith in. That, that she had faith in Jesus in a unique and particular way. In, in, his, in Israel's history, God had commanded that the Israelites would sew a blue tassel on the corner of their garments. This tassel that was commanded to be sewn in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41, for those of you who are Bible nerds and like to look these kinds of things up, was called a tzitzit. Tzitzit. T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. A tzitzit. Now, this this tzitzit uh, that is commanded in, in Numbers 15 was for a specific purpose. Let me read to you from that, that passage there. The Lord said to Moses, Numbers 15, 37, 
Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, uh, which are inclined, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12, reinstates the, the same commandment as the children of Israel are entering into the promised land. And these, these tassels were commanded for everyone to wear. They were a, a sort of proverbial string around the finger, if you will. It was a way of remembering, like the, whenever you saw the border on your garment, it was a way of remembering, oh, that's right, I am owned by the one who set me free, Right? And I'm obligated to obey him. I'm I'm supposed to recall the commands of God and and do them. It was this this sort of visual reminder to them in their daily garments. Now, over time, though, they became infused with other symbolism as well. They had a system of knots by which they would tie these knots on the borders of the garments. And each of these knots, sometimes it was symbolic of the law, but sometimes, oftentimes, it was symbolic of their authority or the embroidery around the corner was symbolic of their authority. This is reinforced, perhaps you'll remember, in the story of of Samuel and Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is supposed, has been given a command by God to go and, and, and conquer the Amalekites and kill King Agag who's the king of the Amalekites. Well, he, he doesn't do that, and Samuel comes and confronts him about that and, and, and tells him that he's going to be judged for his disobedience. And, and then Samuel turns to leave, and Saul seizes the corner of his garment, and it tears. That word for the corner of his garment or the skirt of his garment is kanaf in the Hebrew. And it sometimes is translated skirt about 14 times. But the overwhelming number of times, it's translated wings. Hang on to that. That's important. We'll come back to it. The wings, because the wings of the garment were kind of like this outer part of the garment, the hem, the border that was there. And then later on, of course, you'll remember David is running from Saul, fleeing for his life. He's in the caves in En and all of a sudden, unbeknownst to Saul, he comes in and, and, and he, he goes in to, to, to rest uh, in the cave that David is hiding in. And David sneaks up to him in the darkness of the cave and cuts off the border of his garment. So the prophecy that, that Samuel gave, which is, in the same way that you tore my garment... The kingdom will be torn from you. Your authority will be ripped away from you. Now here he is in the the cave uh, in En Gedi, and David comes in and cuts off the corner of his garment to say, your kingdom, your authority has been taken from you, right? Then, of course, David experiences conviction. He says, oh, man, I shouldn't have touched the Lord's anointed. And and, and Saul says, actually, Samuel told me that this was going to happen. You've acted justly. You could have taken my life. You didn't do that, okay? So sometimes the the border of the garment, the hem, the fringe, the tzitzit that came down was also a symbol of a person's authority, their authority, their status in life. Now, here's what's happening. Why does this matter? Later, when Jesus commends the faith of this woman, it provokes us to ask the question, well, what what did she actually have faith in? What was her faith in? Likely, her faith was in Jesus' authority as the anointed Messiah from God. There's actually this this amazing verse from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. It's a messianic prophecy. It says, but for you who fear my name... The son of righteousness, which is a a poetic 
title for the Messiah. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The word wings there is kanaf. Same Hebrew word for the, the border, right? And it, it, it seems likely here that she is coming and she, her thought is, if I just touch the fringe, if I, if I just touch the tzitzit, that he has authority. I've heard the stories. He has authority to do something about my situation. And, and, and he, can, he can act right now. He can do something. So she sneaks up through the crowd, believing that if she can, if she can touch his kanaf, his wings, the border of his garment, she'll be healed. Now, how much this woman understood all of the things that are implied about Jesus as Messiah is not clear. But regardless, something amazing happens. In verse 29, we read, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She's immediately healed. And she knows it. She, whatever, whatever is happening, she can feel the effects of the healing immediately in her body. In her calamity, coming to Jesus while, while breaking the commandments. She's breaking the law as she approaches Jesus. She's unclean. She threatens to make Jesus and a whole host of other people in the crowd unclean by her presence. By touching his garment, she makes his garment unclean. But Jesus has compassion on this woman. Now watch what happens next. Because Jesus makes her do something that to us would seem, I think, humiliating. He makes her tell her story. And in verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, well, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In verses 30 and 31, Jesus stops the hurried movement to the house of Jairus. He, he perceives that power had gone out from him. And, and this is a show-stopping moment. He whirls around in the face of the crowd and turns around to face the people and says, Hey, who, who, who touched my garment? Now, likely, this woman just wants to fade into the background. Right? She doesn't want anybody knowing the great risk that she took. Now, I want you also to just, just think about this for a moment. Think about the sensitivity of Jesus. I mean, there are people pressing all around him. Hands are out, people touching him. They're making their way through this crowd. Disciples are hurrying him. He can feel the weight of, of Jairus' anxiety. And yet in the moment, he is so sensitive to what is happening in his heart, what is happening in, in, in the spirit, that he senses that something has happened, that there is a healing that has taken place, that, that power from the Holy Spirit to heal has, has actually left him in some way. And he whips around in that moment, living in that kind of awareness and sensitivity to the needs around him. Who touched my garments? And the disciples are perplexed. Without context of what has happened, they start to reason with Jesus. They, they say, well, you see the whole crowd that's around you? Everybody's touching you. And you, why are you saying, who touched my clothes? Why are you saying that? But Jesus just keeps looking into the crowd of people to see who has done it. Notice verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. Just for a moment, let's consider the perspective of each of the people in this portion of Scripture. J. Iris, of course, is, is already feeling urgency due to his daughter's predicament and the fact that she's close to death. 
I could, I could picture him sort of tapping his feet like, okay, can we just, can we move here? Can we, can we get this show on the road? The disciples, along with the crowds, are confused as to what Jesus is asking. Surely there are many people that are touching Jesus' garments. And this woman just wants to melt away. Now, if she confesses what has happened, she will have to admit that she made many people unclean through her brazen actions. She will also have to tell the most embarrassing part of her life in a very public setting. She'll have to take what has caused her intense and long-standing distress and shame and bear it out in the open for everyone to see. Now, but Jesus is not trying to berate her. He's trying to liberate her. He's trying to free her of this shame that she's been carrying. His eyes are piercing into the crowd, looking for the woman to share what she fears to bring out into the open. No one else in the crowd feels conviction the way that she does. His words are so specific. Who touched my garments? She knows what happened in her heart. Everybody else is confused. What's the deal? But she knows God is speaking to her in that moment. Jesus is speaking to her in that moment and calling her to tell her story. He's compassionately calling her out of darkness and into the light. You know, the power of shame is an incredible thing. Did you know that shame that is undealt with is one of the most powerful negative forces in your, in your life, in our lives. Constantly carrying shame sends a whole host of destructive consequences throughout our body, actually our physical health as a result of that. It releases these very destructive hormones, that fight or flight mechanism that happens in our brain when, we're, when we feel the weight of shame and you can feel that sort of hit your heart. That's a shot of adrenaline along with that cortisol. And then your body does this thing called shunting where it pushes blood away from your internal organs to your extremities in that moment. You starve your vital organs of oxygen that is needed and you're hyperventilating, you're, you're, you're trying to super oxygenate at the same time, and your heart rate is being increased. And if you live with shame on, on, a, on a daily basis, 20, 30, 50 times a day, you are hitting that stressor in your life, and it is wearing out your body physically. That is a scientific fact. You're microdosing your body with this powerful, destructive, hormonal cocktail. Now, I say that to say this. When Jesus calls us into the light, he calls us to confess that which we desire to hide. It is not to add to our shame. It is to free us Amen. from our shame. You know, the reason that, that counseling and therapy works is because for so many people, it is the first experience in their life where they can come and share the things that they are afraid, afraid to name. They're afraid to even speak it, and they speak it in a context where it's safe to do so, where it's not supposed to be used against them. And the shame is lifted. It's healing to experience that. You think of how amazing it could be to be a part of a group of people that have become so saturated in the gospel, so firmly has the gospel worked its way into the fibers of their heart that they openly share and confess their lives to one another and minister God's grace and forgiveness to one another. Think about how that could transform a society, a city, a world, simply by living in the reality of the gospel. Let the compassionate heart of Jesus call you into the light. Perhaps as you're sitting here today, you're like, man, I feel like, I feel like Jeremy's talking to me. That's, I don't know you or your situation. The eyes of Jesus are upon you. 
He's calling you into the light. And and that's not to shame you. It's to liberate you from shame. That's why confession is so powerful. Well, in verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down, and told him the whole truth. She confesses it all. Now, notice Jesus' response, because this is key for us in our own confession. Jesus responds to her, and he, the first thing he says to her is, daughter. How long had it been since she'd heard that? How long had it been since she'd felt the affection of another person who didn't look at her in disgust? with sourness. But he calls her daughter, and then he said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, go in shalom, and be healed of your disease. Amen. Hey, if you're here this morning and you're carrying shame, maybe you've been carrying it for 12 minutes, 12 hours, or 12 years. The invitation to confess is an invitation to experience the compassionate love of Jesus. In the same way he responded to this woman, hey, daughter, you told me. This is the truth. This is honesty. This is the real you. You told it to me. You're my daughter. The same way he reaches out to her is the same way he reaches out to us today by the Spirit. Verses 35 to 36, Jesus' compassion and confusion. Go back to the image of Jairus anxiously awaiting Jesus. Internally, he's battling to not be pushy, I would imagine. He feels the weight of urgency for his daughter, though, and, and, and this stop is only aggravating his anxiety. While he is there, listening to Jesus speaking, a familiar face appears from the crowd, reaches out and touches him, says, J.R.S., your daughter's dead. Come on, let's go back home. Don't, don't, talk, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Can you, can you feel that moment? Can you feel the weight of that? How that hits a father's heart? Jesus overhears this and he turns to Jairus and he says to him, Jairus, do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. As the questions start swirling in Jairus' mind, but, but now what? How can Jesus do anything about this now? Where's my wife? I should have been there. She died without me there. I'm her father. How, how did I miss this moment? I wasn't there. What kind of father am I? These questions are swirling around in his heart and his mind, and Jesus interrupts his personal chaos and his confusing thoughts, and he comes in with compassion, and he says to him, Jairus, don't be afraid. Only believe. The Greek is even more succinct. Fear not. Keep on believing. You know, this is the same crisis that you and I will be inevitably led to again and again throughout life. Circumstances give us information. We try to read the meaning of that information, and it looks bad. And yet God calls us, trust me, I will lead you through this. And even if death comes, death is not the end of the story. What I've got waiting for you is more glorious than life here now. Trust me. Give your heart to me. Don't fear. Believe me. You know, it's a grace from God that calls us to this kind of trust. A trust built on the temporariness of our own circumstances leaves us tossed around like waves in the ocean. We're subject to the news of the moment. Kind of like J. Iris was. Right? That's, that's how we experience it too, isn't it? Oh, no. And God speaks comfort, and we go, okay, I trust you, even though it doesn't look right. Just like Jairus, we cannot even imagine the resources that God has at his disposal. And Jairus is in the middle of this. He doesn't know what's coming. But Jesus calls him to trust no matter what comes. Right? And then we see the compassion of Jesus in care, verses 37 to 43. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Remember, he's still training them as disciples. They come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion 
people weeping and wailing outside. They had professional mourners. This is still something that happens in the Middle East. People are crying, wailing. It's very, very loud. It's a public display. But notice that it's fickle because right after that, when Jesus says to them, you know, hey, why are you guys making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. They laugh at him. They, they begin to mock him. <laughs> why are we here? She's dead, right? Notice that they, they don't really enter into the suffering of Jairus and his family. They're just sort of feigning it on the outside, but not Jesus. He goes right in to the suffering of this family. He enters right into it. Verse 40, and they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately were overcome with amazement. The Greek phrasing there is wonderful. It says it, and knocked them off their feet. That's what it meant to be overcome with amazement. It just collapsed. He did it. How did this happen? I could have never seen this coming. But he's Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. He tells them not to tell anyone what took place and likely Jesus is delaying an escalation of conflict between him and the religious leaders that will eventually get him crucified. He also could be clearly signaling that he didn't do this miracle to promote himself as Messiah. He did it simply out of love and compassion for this family. And then he tells them to give her some food. Jesus expresses care for the whole of her person. He's like, okay, look, she's been sick for a while. She hasn't been eating. She's going to need some food. She gets up. She starts walking around because she's 12 years old, verse 42 tells us. So he says, hey, give her some food. She's going to need that. Jesus shows compassion in how he cares for people. He's not concerned with merely the spiritual well-being of the individual, but their overall life. This is so practical for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. It was practical for the disciples then. We see them mirror the same thing in the book of Acts, in another healing that's very similar. Through his example, they are learning to care for the whole of the person, not just their theological or spiritual development. So too, as disciples, you and I would do well to learn from the example of, of Jesus for how we care for one another. Yes. Sam's going to come up here uh, in, in just a moment, lead us through some questions, but I want to leave you with just this one thought. Imagine what the church would look like if we mirrored the compassion of Jesus. We entered into the suffering of one another. I mean, isn't that what Jesus preached in the gospel? He said, it's better that I go away. Right? And that the comforter comes, then I, 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 that he will be in you, that, that my compassion will be lived through you. Hallelujah. You'll be ministering Christ in you to one another, Christ's compassion and care in bearing one another's burdens. Imagine what it would look like to have the compassion of Jesus being lived out in community through us in calamity in confession of sin, in moments of confusion where we don't know what's coming, and in our care for one another. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we've been born again into something, into the ministry of Christ, reconciling the world unto yourself. Have your way in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.